Good morning, everyone. It's good to see a lot of very familiar faces. Um, some familiar faces have got some facial hair on them since I visited. That's Greg, so um, ladies, don't worry, he wasn't. No. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't ask for permission for a joke, like Clarkie did. Uh, my wife, Sarah, and the kids are most disappointed they couldn't come down as well, particularly Sarah. Uh, she really misses... Uh, the people from this church, uh, we've had the privilege of the Abdus and the Butlers both visiting our house in Toowoomba in the last um, couple of months. Um, and the uh, McLarens visited our house before we moved up. We've got two spare guest rooms in our house, so if you're ever passing through Toowoomba, we'd love to have you. Uh, because we miss that support of uh, the church family here. I'm actually the third oldest bloke in the church at 44. So I've come from being the young guy, now I'm the old guy. Sarah has given me one set of instructions. And Nathan, I'll just ask you to put the, some pictures up. She says, you've got to show them our kids. Um, they've grown up. Some of you will have known um, Miller. I said there's a family photo and there's just a couple of the kids. And just so you can see that they exist and they're really cute. And there you go, glad they don't look like their father. <laughs> Sorry, I should give Nathan a bit more notice on that one. And if it doesn't happen, you just have to take my word for it. I've got a good-looking wife and good-looking kids. <laughs> Q&A, you know. Sorry? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Just, just uh, there's something entertaining happening up the front, eh? <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice to come back because there's so many things that haven't changed. Feels all the same. Clarky's still talking about Collingwood. Mal still reminding me how long the sermon should be. <laughs> Just like the good old days. Although I had someone say, oh, it must be cold for you coming down from Toowoomba. While Toowoomba's in Queensland, it's pretty cold. We have frosts. Um, Stanthorpe, which is about an hour and a quarter south of where we are, it does occasionally snow there. Toowoomba people complain about winter. I reckon it's all right. But I might... Just preach a sermon and you can either go look over there later or we can put it up later. I won't open up in prayer, not because I don't think it's important, but because I, Michael's already done that and I kind of feel like I'm undermining it if I do so. So one of the reasons why I chose this particular passage was that during my time here, which I left here three and a half years ago and we were here for six years, I wasn't particularly outward thinking at all. We did a lot of maturing Christians, but I really didn't do a lot in terms of reaching out to those who don't know Jesus, and that's something that God has done a, a real work on me and a time since I've moved up to Toowoomba. And it's something I'm kind of passionate about, the idea of everyday believers um, taking the gospel with them where they go, so hence why this seems like a good passage to go with. Last month, I was up on the central coast of New South Wales, gathered with a group of over 700 Christian leaders from representing over 250 different churches at a conference called Reach Australia where reformed evangelical church leaders will come together with the idea of thinking there are more than 20 million people in our nation who do not know Jesus and who are destined to an eternity in hell other than the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And it was a real blessing to be in that environment, to encourage and, and spur one another on. But come Friday, you have your lunch, and then everybody scatters back to where they originally came from, 
to carry out the mission in which we've been entrusted with. Today we're looking at another form of the church scattering, not a scattering after a gathering together for a conference as such, but because persecution comes and all of the Christians scatter. And I wonder, do you think scattering is a positive thing or a negative thing? Because depending on the setting, for example, in our house, scattering happens all the time. There could be cereal scattered all over the place, toys scattered all over the place. Not a particularly good thing when that happens in our house. But if you've grown up in a crop farming community, scattering is not only a good thing, but it's a necessary thing. So which category would you think that the church being scattered falls into, good or bad? Now imagine you're a first century Christian, you think you've heard the best news ever, you know that Jesus Christ came into the world, who said he came to seek and save the lost, to bring about forgiveness of sinners, he died on a cross to bear their shame, to bear their guilt, to bear their punishment on their behalf, he rose again three days later demonstrating his power over Satan, sin and death. And you think, man, this is the best news ever. Who could possibly resist? Yet within three years, which is the time that's elapsed between Jesus' resurrection and where Acts chapter 8 finds itself, lots of things have happened, both positive and negative. On a positive side, you've got Jesus say to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria. When they were gathered together in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, initially there was 120 Christians gathered. The Spirit comes, Peter proclaims the gospel, and we see a couple of thousand come to salvation on that day. And by the time we come to Acts chapter 8, and I'm sure there's probably other conversions that aren't recorded, but based on those that are recorded, we're looking at a figure of at least 10,000 followers of Jesus. But it hasn't always been smooth sailing. Think about the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the people who you would think should best understand the Old Testament and therefore be best equipped to identify the Messiah, they're not in favour of the growth of the Christian church at all. So far through the book of Acts, they've actually said, you cannot speak of this name Jesus. They've imprisoned the apostles, they've beaten them. And in the chapter just prior to the one we're looking at today, Stephen was executed, stoned, for proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Messiah risen from the dead. So if you're a first century Christian, you think, is there part of you that's got to start asking the question, if these people think that it's so blasphemous what we believe, that they're stoning people, have we got it right? And if we have got it right, seeing what is happening as opposition towards the Christians... Is it worth it? And I think the resounding answer you see throughout the entire book of Acts is yes. I don't think you even see a moment when there's even a consideration of, is this really worth it? The church is continuing to grow despite the persecution that's happening. And after Stephen's stoning, persecution ramps up in this chapter greater than it ever has before. And if you were reading book of Acts for the first time, you might be starting to think now, is this going to be the straw which breaks the camel's back? 
So the first three verses we're looking at, persecution scatters the Christians. So I didn't provide an outline, but if you're a note person, first point, persecution scatters the Christians, verses 1 to 3. That opens up with looking at Saul, who in the previous chapter is, he's effectively the cloak manager at Stephen Stoning. So he seems to be in full agreement with the Jewish leaders that to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Messiah risen from the dead deserves to be killed. And after Stephen's death, that persecution intensified so much that all of the Christians scattered and left. With only one exception, the apostles stayed behind. So the ones who were scattered were just the normal, everyday Christians. Now if you go back a few chapters to Acts chapter 5, when the religious leaders are discussing the implications of the growth of the church, what are we going to do about it? And one of the rabbis, Gamaliel, says, if this is just a man thing, it's it's just going to fizz out, it's going to come to nothing. But probably speaking a bit wiser than he actually anticipated, he said, if this is of God, you won't be able to stop it. But at this point in time, I think the Jewish leaders are probably thinking, now, we've made an example of that, Stephen. All of the Christians have scattered. We've just got the apostles behind. If we wipe them out, Christianity is going to come to nothing. Now, certainly that was the mindset of Saul, and he's putting everything within his power to ensure that is the case. Look at verse 3. Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. That's passion for you. He's not waiting till they come together in a public church gathering. House to house, indiscriminate, men and women, dragging them off to prison. But when you see in your translation you might have ravaging or destroying or making havoc of the church, the term that's translated there means to lay to waste, to bring to complete ruin, to annihilate. Saul wasn't just on an idea of causing a bit of trouble. He had begun on a mission to completely annihilate and bring the Christian church to nothing. So between the persecution that scattered the Christians and Paul's intense mission to just wipe out the Christian church, does that hinder the gospel? Second point, as the gospel scatters, when the Christian scatters, verses 4 to 8. I love verse 4. It's probably become my favourite verse in the last couple of years. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Can you remember who was scattered back in verse 2? The normal, everyday Christians. The apostles stayed behind, but all of the other Christians, they scattered. And the normal, everyday Christians went about preaching the word. And you'll notice that there's no point where the apostles get everyone together and say, Guys, we're going to stay behind. Therefore, we need you to start doing ministry and start talking to people about Jesus on our behalf. Nor do the people say, guys, the apostles are back here. We need to take up the baton. This is our job now. Without any prompting whatsoever, what we see is that to take and declare the good news of the gospel wherever you went was the normal pattern for Christian life. The persecution didn't stop the spread of the gospel. If anything, it led to the expansion of that mission. Exactly like Jesus said, be witnessed in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and eventually off to the ends of the world. It wasn't just geographical expansion. So far throughout the book of Acts, all of the focus seems to be on Peter so far and a little bit of John. 
And now we're seeing what God is doing at the hand of just normal, ordinary Christians. And we shouldn't see this as being a once-off of, wow, this happened on this one occasion. That's kind of the implications of the Great Commission. When Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, baptise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you, that's kind of like a make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. It's an ongoing multiplication. But when you see the word preaching that they did, I don't want you to start thinking that meant that somehow they stood up somewhere, had a three-point sermon, less than half an hour, Mal, with a Spurgeon quote. It just means to speak good news. Is what they did. Wherever they went, they spoke about Jesus. And I want to put it to you, and just hear me out for a moment, I want to put it to you that every single person in the world, even a militant atheist, is an evangelist. If an evangelist is just someone who declares what they believe to be good news, then people do it all the time. You find someone who's just had their first child, you'll find they are an evangelist for having children. Whether you like it or not, they'll pull out their phone, they'll show you all of the photos. Grandparents are not exempt, they'll do the same thing. Someone who's just been on a really exciting holiday... At least you can do it on the phone there. Remember those boring days when people say, want to come back to my house and watch a slideshow? <laughs> I can use that joke here. I did it in my church. People say, what's a slideshow? Is that something to do in PowerPoint? Or even Collingwood supporters will naturally talk about it without even giving any prompting whatsoever. But why do we do it? Because the things that we love, the things that we value, we talk about. Remember, this is exactly what Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we naturally do that about footy, kids, holidays, how much more should a redeemed people of Jesus Christ naturally speak about Jesus Christ in their going-ins and going-outs of life? I sometimes wonder if one of the reasons why we struggle with evangelism is that it seems really inconsistent the way that we do it. Like we kind of get to a point where we pluck up the courage, we finally talk to someone about Jesus, say, this is the most important thing in my life, I want you to hear about this. And they hear this message and they're confused. They're like, so if this is the most important thing in my life, in your life, and I've known you for 20 years, but you've never mentioned it, you actually believe, expect me to believe this is the most important thing in your life. And then sometimes it gets a little bit more awkward because we've learned a particular way of explaining the gospel, a particular way of saying it, a particular presentation, which may not actually fit our personality. And so the conversation goes all normal up to a certain point. And then we start talking about Jesus. We're like, Steve's gone a bit weird. He doesn't normally speak like this. But have you noticed that parents, football fans... People have been on a holiday, haven't got a prepared way they're going to talk about those things. It just naturally comes out. And that's what happened for these early Christians as they were scattered. Now, while most of them were just talking as they went, Philip was one exception who did stand up and address before the crowds. He was one of the original seven chosen back in previous chapters to wait on tables alongside Stephen. But just like Stephen, even though his role or his defined role in the church was a serving role, 
That didn't change his identity as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, who therefore by nature is called to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. It's kind of interesting that he is the only person in the entire New Testament who gets called an evangelist. Even though the apostles and many others, we see a number of people come to um, saving grace through their message. And the crowds paid great attention to Philip, his words and the signs are taking place. There are people having demons cast out of them, people being healed, and it tells us there in verse 8, there was great joy in the city. And if you were just reading through that, you could think, casting out demons and healing, that's great joy, that must be what you need to do in order to, to bring people to know Jesus. But if you look down at verse 12, it tells you how they were saved. It says, they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, and they were baptised both men and women. That's how they were saved. They believed the message that had been proclaimed. But this is a big and an important new day for the gospel. This is the first time of that of the gospel going out of Jerusalem into Samaria for the very first time. And any time something new happens, like even in the world in which we live in, people will do special things to highlight that. I remember when Woolworths opened up here in town, you know, there was great sort of bargains, all sorts of special things happening at the store as a way of saying, come on down here, something new and special is happening. And we see things happening in this chapter, which it might seem out of the normal, drawing attention that God is doing new work, the gospel is going out. Not only are we seeing great signs and wonders happening in the hands of Philip, who's not an apostle, but no doubt when you're listening to the reading, you thought, this way they receive the Holy Spirit sounds a little bit weird, a little bit not what I'm used to hearing. So verse 3, we're going to look at, oh, not verse, part 3, how and when do we receive the Holy Spirit? Verses 14 to 17. Now we know how they were saved. They were saved when they heard the message from, from Philip as he preached the word about the kingdom of God and Jesus. They were baptised. So they're Christian, right? So it makes verses 14 to 17 initially sound a bit odd. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen yet on any of them. But they had been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When you read through the chapter you think, that sounds like a two steps in salvation, doesn't it? They believed, they were baptised, but it wasn't until Peter and John came along and laid hands on that they received the Holy Spirit. Now here's the fun part. The people who don't know me think, I don't know who Steve is, I don't know where he's going with this. But when you come across any passage in the Bible where things just seem odd and you think, that's not the way I think it's supposed to go, I think there's two important questions you should ask. One is, is this normal description of what should happen ongoing for all time and therefore do I need to change my opinion on something? Or is there something unusual and sort of one-off about this occasion and why are things happening differently on this occasion? Because it can be quite dangerous when you start building your doctrines around something that happens once in the Bible. And the book of Acts is probably a fantastic book for taking something and going all sorts of weird and wonderful places with it. 
Like as I look around the room, I see a number of people here with glasses, myself included. Do I take from the Gospels to see that all I need to do is spit in some mud, rub it in your eyes and none of us are going to need glasses? No, just because something was described as happening once doesn't necessarily mean that's what we're supposed to do for all time. Now some churches will look at this passage and say, well this is the pattern for normal times. Someone believes, then we lay hands on them later on to receive the Holy Spirit. Then there's others who don't know what to do with the difficulty of it and they say, well maybe, maybe they just didn't really believe until Peter and John came along. But there's no evidence there. The language there is they believed and they were baptised beforehand. There's no sign that Peter and John corrected any false understanding that they had. So why do I say this, this is a deviation from what is biblically normal? We'll go back to Pentecost. When Peter had proclaimed the gospel and they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? Peter says, repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. I hear you quoted, when you repent, you will receive the Holy Spirit. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, having believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee and seal of your inheritance. So the normal biblical pattern is, you, you come to Christ in faith, and you receive the Holy Spirit. So why would they be happening anything differently here? Well, remember... Our setting is the gospel is going out for the first time outside of Jerusalem to the Samaritans. And I think there's two main reasons why God has intentionally done things differently on this one occasion. One, for the benefit of the Samaritans. For them to have the apostles come out to them and legitimise them as genuinely saved and experiencing the same Holy Spirit just as the Jewish Christians did back at Pentecost. But I think secondly, it was for the benefit of the apostles. So they can have absolute certainty that the gospel of grace had actually gone to the Samaritans and so they can report back uh, to the church in Jerusalem of what God is doing and how that initial task to be witnesses all the way out to the ends of the earth is taking place. I love it that it's Peter and John who get sent out there because in Luke chapter 9, verse 54... Here's an insight into John's mind. He says to Jesus, speaking of the Samaritans, should I call down fire from heaven on them? And yet he gets to go out and see how the grace of God to save a people happened to those people that he once rejected. So there's some unusual things happening around the reception of the Holy Spirit. But even Simon, our last point, how do we respond rightly to the gospel? Simon is an interesting example. He's introduced in verse 9 as a sorcerer or a magician who's done all sorts of things. He's got the respect and the admiration of many people and you certainly get the impression he liked that. I think he talked himself up quite a bit. But he too heard Philip. And it says when Simon himself believed and after being baptised he continued with Philip, after seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Did he believe? The language seems to be there. He believed and he was baptised. But sometimes you read the rest of the chapter and you think, did he believe, did he entrust himself to Jesus and commit himself to Jesus? Or was he just fascinated with, with, the, with the miracles and with Philip? 
Because beyond the stated thing that he believed and was baptised, you don't actually see much in the way of fruit of someone who'd come to faith. You see lots of interest in the miracles, so much so that when he saw that, that when John and Peter laid hands on the Christians, they received the Holy Spirit, he's like, wow, that's a good one. I'll give you some big dollars to add that trick to my bag of tricks. But why do I wonder about Simon's condition? When Peter called him to repent for wanting to pay for the gift to impart the Holy Spirit, Simon didn't seem to be the least bit concerned that he'd offended this God that he's claimed that he's now believing in. All he said is, no, I'm not going to pray. Can you pray for me that these things you talk about don't happen to me? So it's unclear whether Simon was just a very immature Christian or whether he was not saved. But one thing is abundantly clear. The gracious gifts of God are always for his glory and never for ours. God still does amazing things on a daily basis through people. Whether it's someone who has a powerful evangelistic ministry who just seems to have a short conversation with someone sitting next to them for five minutes on a bus and they become a Christian. Or someone who preached or wrote a book that profoundly changed your life. There is always a temptation to want to take credit for something that God has done. As Michael was reminding us earlier on when he was talking about your tracks and praying because God's the only one who's going to save someone. You and I don't do it. Your personality, your skills, your words aren't going to be the thing that makes the major difference. But however God uses you, whatever ministry role you may or may not have, we need to cling tight to God and we need to give thanks to him for anything that happens. Simon's hardly an example of a good response to the gospel. Now, if Simon was genuinely saved, that's a, that's a wonderful miracle in itself. That someone who was in rebellion against the God had created everything and given him life and breath and everything. That Simon was destined to bear his own eternal death. Yet Jesus came into a world of rebels, died in their place, rose again, placed his Holy Spirit in those who had come to him in faith, giving them hope both now and for all eternity. If Simon truly understood the gospel and responded to it, then he should be just thankful that he's a child of God. He could say, I don't need anything else. I've got Jesus. I don't understand sometimes why people feel the need to dress up the gospel as though somehow it needs a little bit of marketing work. So come to Jesus and you'll get health, wealth and prosperity. And so somehow the, the gospel's a bit dull and it needs something else to make it more attractive. To me that sounds like saying, I've got a cancer cure and if you take the cancer cure I'll give you a free iPhone. If you had cancer, you, all you would care is that the cure was available to you. You wouldn't care at all if there was an iPhone in the deal. And if you understand what the gospel actually entails and the beauty of all of what is encapsulated in the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, you don't need to spice it up. If you think the gospel itself is lacking in appeal, it's not that you need better marketing, better technique, 
I think you just need to recapture the beauty of the gospel that has already been made known. That is the power of God for salvation. The passage ends just the way it starts. In the beginning, the Christian scatters. As they go, they, they proclaim the gospel. At the end, Peter and John return to Jerusalem, proclaiming the gospel wherever they go. And you kind of have this pattern that whether you're an apostle or whether you're just a normal, everyday Christian, where the Christians go, the gospel goes. So what? Well, there's two words for scattered in the Bible. So should we think about the church being scattered as a positive or a negative thing? One of the words that's used to scatter means that sort of meaningless scatter, like what happens in our house on a daily basis. Well, the one which is used here is a Greek word, diaspero, which is made up of two words. Dia meaning movement towards, and spero, which is a verb meaning to plant or to sow, like to sow a seed. And that's the word that's used in this passage. They were scattered, as in they were moved out for the purpose of planting and sowing. And it's helpful to understand this passage is part of God's plan, that this isn't just something that went wrong and then as a result people had to go places. God's plan as revealed through Jesus was that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and then to Judea, sorry, Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But it's also helpful to understand who we are as a church. Mafra Community Church isn't this building. It's not something that happens between 10 o'clock and whatever time it finishes on a Sunday. We are a church on Sunday morning. We are a church throughout the entirety of the week. We are the church gathered on a Sunday morning to, to encourage one another, to spur one another on, to build each other up. And then we are the church scattered throughout the week where we move out and we carry and we take the gospel with us wherever we go. And that's sort of where the real challenge of this passage is. Can it be said of you and I that where I go, the gospel goes? Can it be said that the gospel goes to my neighbourhood because I live in my neighbourhood? Or is it simply that someone in that neighbourhood knows the gospel that they keep to themselves? Can it be said that the gospel goes to my workplace because I go to my workplace? Can it be said the gospel goes to my school because I go to my school? Because as Christians, we are a sent people. The Great Commission has multiplying ripple effect that goes out. We are a sent people and it's kind of counterproductive to not carry out the mission for which we're sent for. But the thing I find most encouraging is that these are just normal, everyday Christians. They haven't gone to Bible college. It doesn't say, and those who were young and really sharp-minded went out proclaiming the gospel. It doesn't say those who were extroverts went out and proclaimed the gospel. It doesn't say those who knew all the answers to the tricky questions went out with the gospel. However much they knew, only three years have transpired since Jesus' resurrection, so that at best they've been a Christian for three years. Whatever they did know, they knew it had changed their life and they knew this is news that people need to hear. Out of the abundance of their heart, their mouth spoke, the gospel went forward. And guess what? It's the same gospel that you and I have, the same gospel that Paul declares to be the power of God for salvation for many, 
Your technique isn't the power of God for salvation. Your personality is not the power of God for salvation. Your ability to answer questions isn't the power of God for salvation. God's gospel. What God has done in Jesus Christ to deal with our sin is the power of God for salvation. And they had the same Holy Spirit that you and I have. In fact, you've got the same Holy Spirit that the apostles had too. No surprises there. So as we leave today, may it be said of us that we're not just going home from church, but we are actually being sent out with a purpose to go and to scatter. J.D. Greer, who's a Baptist minister in the United States, that's how he finished his service. He says, church, you are not dismissed. You are sent. Uh, you are all sent as missionaries, local missionaries. Mission is not just something that happens overseas. Mission is ha- happens wherever God's people go. So let me pray for you and for I uh, that God would be pleased to send us out and to use us and for us to have a, um, a confidence in the message of the gospel itself. Heavenly Father, it is great joy that we can call upon you as our Father. And for anyone to have be able to call upon you as a Father is only because at some point someone has declared to us what you have done through your Son Jesus Christ to deal with our sin. The same power of God that was in, uh, in work in our life to bring us under conviction of our sin and to grant us the repentance and faith to turn to you and to trust you. Uh, Lord, we pray you give us a renewed confidence in the gospel itself, that we would stop worrying and being so worried about our personality or our way that we put together our words, Uh, but help us to boldly trust in the power of your gospel, boldly depend upon you in prayer and the power of your spirit to bring conviction. And Lord, may we be encouraged and give you thanks as we see good fruit come from our labours, which is never in vain. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.